0: Can we have any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed uh, through the door over here by the piano as they go to Children's Church? And as our kids are going to Children's Church, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verse 1. As we plow ahead through Luke and we come to a new chapter, Luke chapter 9, verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1025. Luke chapter 9. Let me just read the text here. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So, they set out. And went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. I read a story uh, this week about a church in Strasbourg, Germany during World War II that was hit by an Allied bombing raid. And as the parishioners came to clean out the church and pull away the debris, they found there in the church, almost miraculously unscathed, a statue of Jesus that had been in the church. Uh, and it was safe, except for one thing. The hands of the statue had been broken off. Uh, and so they were refurbishing the church and cleaning it up and apparently a sculptor came and saw the efforts and uh, saw the statue and he was really moved by it. And so he went to the church leadership and offered his services. He said, I would be happy to sculpt new hands for the statue uh, if you would like. And so the church leadership talked about it. Then they came back to the sculptor and they sort of gave a surprising answer. They said, actually, no, we don't want new hands for the statue. They said, because as we've been rebuilding and refurbishing, every time we see that statue, we're reminded that we are the hands of Christ. That we are the ones to be used by Jesus to reach out to our community and to bring his grace and healing and love to the people around us. And isn't that an amazing thought, that we are the hands of Christ, that God's plan is To extend his kingdom throughout the world, his reign and his rule, is to use us. That uh, Jesus' deployment mechanism, if you want to think about it that way, for the kingdom of God, is his disciples. Which is truly amazing, because there's probably a lot of more effective ways Jesus could have done it. Uh, certainly he could have done what he did when he was born and the angels came and proclaimed to the shepherds, go to Bethlehem and see the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And he could have done the same thing. After his resurrection, he could have sent angels out around the world and they could have appeared to people saying, Jesus has been crucified, buried and raised for sinners. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's coming again to judge. Therefore, repent and believe in Jesus now for salvation. You know, The Gospel. He could have proclaimed the gospel through those kinds of supernatural means. But instead, he didn't. He chose us to be the way through which God's gospel and God's kingdom is going to spread through the world. Uh, And not only did he choose us, but that was the plan from the beginning. In other words, we're not like plan C. You know, Plan A and plan B didn't really work, and so it's like, well, what am I going to do? I guess I'll use these guys. That wasn't the plan. From the very get-go of Jesus' ministry... The plan was to equip and empower and authorize the disciples to eventually take the message of the gospel and proclaim it to the world. Uh, you remember in uh, earlier in Luke, we saw how Jesus picked 12 disciples and what he named them. He named them the apostles, which in Greek means the sent one. So already he's telling them, you're going to be sent. Or in uh, Luke chapter 5, which we studied, you remember the story when Peter was called to be a disciple. And Peter was there and his brother Andrew and their two fishing buddies, James and John, and Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. So from the very inception of Christ's ministry, the intention was to equip and empower the disciples to be the ones who would carry the message of the gospel to the world. Now up to this point, though, in Luke, we haven't really seen that happen, have we? Uh, up to this point in Luke, there's been Jesus, and the disciples have been there, but you know, they've been really in the background. I mean, they're almost like kind of furniture. Uh, you know, wall hangings. They're, they're there and they're in the story, but you don't really pay attention to them. The focus has been on Jesus. What Jesus is doing. His miracles. Um, his teachings. And the disciples have just been kind of following him around, watching him do his miracles, listening to his sermons. And I figure, as an itinerant minister, I'm assuming that Jesus probably preached similar sermons and used similar analogies and metaphors in different places. And so here's the disciples following him from village to village, listening to the same, you know, points, generally speaking, over and over. And they're memorizing it and learning it. But so far, they've been in the background. Now in chapter 9, the disciples move forward into the foreground. And they go from observers to practitioners. It's time to end the observation period and start practicing the gospel. They're, They're pushed forward into the spotlight And now we're going to see the disciples starting to take on the ministry of Jesus. We're going to see their successes. And more often, their failures. Far more often, in fact. We're going to see their lack of faith. We're going to see their lack of prayer. Their lack of insight. We're going to see their cowardice. And we're going to see their pride and their lack of humility. And yet, somehow, in spite of all that, Jesus uses them as his hands for reaching out and touching people for the kingdom of God. And he uses us as well. And so let's just jump right into the story. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So here we have the king delegating authority to his ambassadors. It's kind of like if the president gave authority to an ambassador, he says, look, I want you to go to such and such a country, and I want you to speak for me. And this is what I want you to tell them there. Here's the deal I want you to broker. And so the ambassador goes out, and he flies to the other country, and he knocks on the door of the ambassador there, or the prime minister there, and he says, the president says this. And so that, that ambassador now has the authority and the presence of the president behind him. And that's how Jesus sends out the disciples. You're going to go out and do what I've been doing. And specifically, they're going to do two things that kind of sum up the ministry of Jesus. They're going to do miracles, and they're going to teach. That's basically what Jesus has been doing, miracles and teaching. Jesus has been demonstrating the kingdom of God through miracles, and he's been declaring the kingdom of God. He's been proving the reality of God's kingdom by healing and exercising demons, and he's been proclaiming God's kingdom. And so now he gives a power to the disciples, and whatever he did, and then they have it, And now they're the ones who are supposed to go out and perform miracles just like Jesus and say the things that they've been hearing Jesus saying over and over again. Uh, They are his ambassadors. And today Jesus uses the same mechanism. He uses his disciples. We have been authorized and empowered to go out and proclaim the gospel. Now it's not exactly like this, is it? I mean, this isn't exactly the same way Jesus has sent us out. Uh, For instance... Uh, Jesus doesn't give every Christian today the power to heal people by fiat. We can't go out and just say to somebody, "Stand up and walk," and they can walk. I mean, I wish I had that power. Uh, you know, I could heal my kids' ear infections, and you know, it'd be great. I wouldn't have to go to the doctor so much, and I could really help people in the church. But, but we don't, as Christians, all have the power the way these apostles all had the power to see a blind person and say, "See," and the person sees. Does God still do miracles today through His church? Yes. But typically what you see is through prayer. It's as the church prays for God's blessings and sometimes prays over time. But, but it's not the same kind of just look, stand, speak, heal. Uh, so that's kind of different. But we do have Christ's authority and power. God still works in miraculous ways today. And notice the other thing that I think is interesting. The message is a little bit different, isn't it? We're still preaching the kingdom of God, but the message we preach is different than the message that they preached. Because they just preached, hey, Jesus is coming, the kingdom of God is near, get ready, turn to, turn to the kingdom of God. But we have a fuller message. We have a more complete message. Our message is how the kingdom of God has come. It's through Jesus, crucified, buried, for sinners, raised, coming again. And so the message we have is a bigger message. It's a more complete message. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? In some ways, their miraculous power was greater than what God's given to us as average Christians today. But in some ways, our message is greater than what they had. And so we have this message of the Gospel. But this is the same in either case. That God has commissioned and authorized and empowered us as His disciples to proclaim the Gospel around the world. Remember Matthew uh, chapter 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus, after His resurrection, sends His followers out and He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go. Go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So Jesus empowers us as his disciples. He authorizes us. Just as Jesus had authority, so he says, okay, I'm going to give you authority now, and you have the right, you have the, the carte blanche, you have the pass to go speak about me to other people. You have the authority. You're commissioned. You are the official spokesmodels for the kingdom of God. Go and tell people about me. Um, And not only do we have the authority, we have the power today. I think of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said to the disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we have authorization and power from Christ to speak the gospel. Uh, We are his body. We are his hands. Uh, And we need to let this kind of soak in. That this, we're the plan. God wants to use us. You know, last Sunday I told you this statistic I had heard, which kind of blew me away. Uh, a pastor friend of mine, remember I told you about this? He saw a George Barna study. And according to George Barna, uh, who did a study of evangelicals all over America, he found that the area from Rhode Island up through southeastern Massachusetts to Boston is the least evangelical area in America. That was what he, he was found. I thought, wow. You know. Uh, so what's the plan? What are we going to do? I mean, what is the plan? Should we fly in a bunch of hotshot Southern Baptist preachers from Georgia? I mean, is that the plan? Should we bring in big evangelists? Get the megachurch pastors from around the country and sort of bring them here, get the professionals in? You know what God's plan is? Is us. We're the plan. And God wants to use regular people like us to see his gospel come to pass, even in this most a seemingly spiritually anemic place in in America. Um, God wants us to be his ambassadors. And I think that's important, because I think a lot of us have kind of a spiritual inferiority complex. Like, I couldn't do that. I'm just a regular guy. I'm a regular woman. I'm just a kid. You know, I don't know a lot. If I start talking about Jesus, people are going to ask me questions I'm not going to know the answer to. and I'm going to mess up the message. I'm going to say the wrong thing. And you know, I'm depressed right now. I'm struggling with some grief in my life or I have anxiety or I, I lost my job and so I'm not doing well and, and I'm, not, I'm weak right now. I'm a weak person right now. I'm going through hard times. How could I be a messenger? And, and you know, I'm not perfect. Uh, if I'm the hands of Jesus, well, you know, these hands are kind of dirty because I, I can't seem to, you know, follow Christ the way I want to. And so there's got to be someone else. There's got to be a professional. There's got to be some kind of uh, spiritual SWAT team that will rope in and take care of this because it's not me. I can't do this. I'm too broken, too weak, too whatever. And we have to get used to the idea that, yeah, on one level that's true. We aren't sufficient. Right. We don't deserve to do this. But Christ, the King, has given us His authority, not ours, and His power, not ours, and His message, not ours, and we are to carry that to the world. We, we have authorization. And it doesn't come from us. And so it's not a matter of how I feel about myself. It's what I know about Christ and what he's told me. And so we are the ambassadors of Christ. Um, I had this interesting experience that I was thinking about when I was doing this passage, studying this passage. And uh, I I got to speak at um, Congress this year. Uh, Not Congress down in Washington, D.C. It was the, the Congress here in Boston. Maybe you've heard of it. Every year at the Heinz Convention Center, there's this huge gathering of Christians. Uh, thousands of Christians come from New England and they bring in all these big-name super pastors from all over uh, evangelicalism and they come to speak and there's incredible worship and there's workshops. It's, it's an amazing thing. Thousands of people come and kind of just gather together to be built up in their faith and they always kind of look for some local guys to be the MCs. So I got to be an MC at Congress. So, you know, that was fun. So i never done that before, but why not? Try something new. So I, I went, and uh, you're a little bit intimidated. You look in the auditorium, and there's all these thousands of seats, and there's a big jumbotron screen that's huge, and this is a big event. And you're like, I'm going to MC this? I mean, who am I? I'm sure there's other pastors here who could just do a fine job. There's probably other people here who are professional entertainers who could know how to do this better than I could. I'm like, you know, who am I? And so I go get my name tag. Everyone at Congress has a name tag. And I get my name tag, and she gives it to me. and. You know, it's one of these kind of things you stick on your shirt and it says who you are and where you're from. But mine is a little different. I had a black ribbon hanging down it. And in gold lettering it said speaker. <laughs> I was like, "Huh? Speaker." Huh. How about you? You get Oh, you don't have one, huh? huh. <laughs> I guess you're a listener. <laughs> you have to listen to me because I'm you know, I don't see many... Sp- I'm the speaker. Huh. Well, you know, that's that's pretty cool. So, you know, now I'm a speaker at Congress. And I have a little badge. And I can go back in the green room where no one else is allowed to go. And I can stand next to all the evangelical glitterati and all these famous people. I can eat the food in the green room, which I did. I can go backstage and no one's going to call security. Uh, I can I can look at all the sound booth and all the technical setup and I can hang out backstage with the worship guys who write all the worship songs that we sing today, and they're there leading their music. And and most importantly, when it comes time to speak, I can walk up on the stage and stand at the podium in front of thousands of people, and security's not going to jump me and haul me out. Because I'm authorized, I have the little thing that says, speaker. And I wish I still had it. I think I threw it away, but I, I was like, I should have worn that this morning if I still had it. But... <laughs> Actually, what I should have done was made up one of those for each of you to wear. Because if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, if you've been born again by the power of God, if you're a real biblical Christian who's been saved and you know Christ, then because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, you are authorized to speak on behalf of Jesus wherever you are. You, you don't have to wait for permission It's okay if it kind of is out of the ordinary because you're authorized. The king has told you that you can do it. He says, you're my spokespeople. You're going to go to that mom's group and you're going to go to that book club and you are the ones I'm sending to your office or to the university where you're at or your school or your neighborhood or whatever it is, all those places. And it's okay for you to speak about Jesus because you have been authorized and empowered to go and represent Christ. And, and I just want to emphasize that because I think it has got to soak in at some level. And we've got to see that, yes, I am inadequate and I am a broken person in some ways and I am not sufficient, but that's not the point. Christ is my sufficiency. Christ is my authorization. So I need to open my mouth and, and take risks. And we need to let that soak in because, frankly, the work of the kingdom of God is difficult. Proclaiming the gospel is hard. It is challenging. There are setbacks. There are difficulties. And unless I'm fully convinced of my uh, uh, spiritual identity, so to speak, who I am in Christ, I'm not going to have the the internal strength to face the challenges that are going to come with the work of the Gospel. So if you look, um, for instance, uh, in verses 3 through 5, we see two of the challenges. There's more than this. But in addition to just the challenge of my own sense of insufficiency... There's two other challenges that come with preaching the gospel. And one of them is that preaching the gospel, and I use that term broadly, uh, can, includes and necessitates faith. We have to be totally dependent upon God for this to take place. Look at verse 3. He told them, Take nothing for the journey no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. It's pretty incredible. So Jesus calls the disciples together. He's like, come here, guys, come here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, what's up? What are we doing? And he goes, okay, first of all, I'm going to give you my power to heal and to preach. Boop. Okay, you got that. All right. Now I want you to turn around right now and I want you to go and proclaim the gospel and do miracles. They're like, you know, I can just imagine, look, now? <laughs> yeah, right now. Go, go. Shoo shoo. What do you mean? I got to go get packed. No, 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 no packing. No extra clothes. No extra stuff. Can I bring my backpack? No. Uh, money? Nope. No gold, no silver, no credit card, no debit card, nothing. Just go. Uh, sh- can I even bring some food? No. Just go right now, as unprepared as you are, without your extra clothes, without your toiletries bag. Go. Well, where are we going to stay? Don't worry someone will open their house to you. Who? I don't know. You're going to find out. <sighs> Just go. Go, 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 go. And they're like, okay, we're going. <laughs> and here they go. And it's so immediate and vibrant and fresh and raw, and they just go in total dependence upon God. Total dependence that God is going to provide for all of their needs. And we need to depend upon God. If we're going to minister for the Gospel, I'm telling you, it's going to take risk-taking, it's going to take faith. We're not going to preach the Gospel of Christ to this evangelically anemic part of the country by staying comfortable. It's not going to happen. Uh, that's why maybe it's so anemic. is <laughs> because we're too comfortable. We need to be out there and be bold. We have to take risks. Now, is this passage uh, giving us a blueprint for how missionaries have to function? Is this passage telling us that all missionaries and all Christians simply need to go without anything and let God take care of everything? And I, I would say no. Uh, we know the Apostle Paul in the New Testament used a different missionary pattern. And He went out and he was a tent maker, and so he made tents, and that's how... He trusted God to provide for him was by doing work. So there's different ways of funding missions. But I think no matter what you do, if you're a missionary, and all missionaries are mostly attest to this, that uh, it takes faith. It takes faith. Even if you're just going around church to church trying to solicit funds and support yourself, it takes faith. That's why we call these little pink cards our faith promise cards. Because the missionaries are trusting us that we can fund them. And we're trusting God to be able to give us the resources we need and commit to a year of Supporting a missionary. And so it's all based on faith. But even beyond finances, it just takes faith to do any kind of ministry. If you've ever been involved in ministry, you know that it takes a deep dependence on God. Uh, Every Sunday when I get up to preach, I'm depending on God. I start out during the week, and I'm studying the passage, and at some point I'll usually have to pray, and the prayer will go something like this, God, what in the world am I supposed to say to these people? And I pray, and I say, God, help me. My mind is so narrow. I have such few ideas. I need you to show me what your word is saying and then show me what the people need to hear from what your word is saying. I need you to show me what it means and how to apply it. And so I pray during the week, like God speak. And sometimes it's not till Saturday night. Sometimes it's not until Sunday morning that the last piece of the sermon will fall into place and something will just come into my mind and I'll, or someone will tell me something and I'll be like, right, and that'll fit. And then I'll preach the sermon and afterwards someone will be like, you know that little thing you said in there? that really was what I needed. And that was the thing that you know you get right before you go up to, sp- to speak. And sometimes it's like that. So you depend upon God in ministry. For if you're doing a Bible study, if you're teaching kids, if you're doing anything, any kind of ministry, you have to depend upon God to give you what you need. And if you're trying to reach people for Jesus, ultimately, their hearts can only be changed by God's power. So true success in ministry is even totally dependent upon God. There's no way to persuade, reason, or argue anyone into the kingdom of God. Uh, Salvation is a miracle that is wrought in the heart of the individual by the Holy Spirit. God has to open the heart. He uses us to preach it, yes, but God has to save the person. And so even success, quote-unquote, in ministry, is totally dependent upon God. So I'm dependent upon God, and if I'm going to have that kind of faith in God, then I need to know that He sent me. If I'm gonna take a faith step, and maybe your faith step this week is simply letting somebody at work know that you actually are a Christian. Maybe that's huge. Perhaps so far at work you've really gone undercover. You're covert op. You're so, fact, you're so deep undercover, no one at all knows that you're a Christian. And, and now it's time to kind of break your cover a little bit and let somebody know that you are. Maybe that's the faith step. But how are you gonna do that? It's terrifying. You're gonna do that, and I'm gonna do it if I know that I've been empowered and authorized. Then I take the faith step and I say, yeah, I had a good, what would you do this weekend? Oh, yeah, it was a church, you know. You're where? It was a church, <coughs> you know. And you start speaking up for Christ and open, using open doors to talk about your faith in Jesus in a loving, kind, warm, gracious kind of way that's natural to who you are in your own personality, but speaking the message. <coughs> and so it's going to take faith. And some of us here are not risk takers. Some of us here are risk averse. We we like to have our routines. We like our patterns. We like everything that's safe and understandable and predictable. And we have our financial plan, our business plan, our life plan. And everything's laid out. And God's sometimes going to throw things in that don't fit. And we have to be willing to take risks for the kingdom of God in faith in Christ. And so we're only going to have faith if we have that sense of empowerment and authorization. The other thing that the sense of empowerment and authorization does is it enables us to face the rejection that comes along with the kingdom of God. Because there is rejection. There is, at times, open hostility. Look at verse 5. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. The Pharisees had this practice when they would come from traveling abroad. They would come back into the land of Israel out of Gentile territory is that they would stop at the edge of Israel's borders and they would you know, do this thing. They would shake the dust off their feet. And it was symbolic. It was a way of saying, I am leaving these unclean, unbelieving, heathen people and coming back into God's land. And these people are so far from understanding God that I'm even going to shake the dust off my feet from being there. It was kind of a, a rebuke to people who didn't come to God. And so, in a sense, that's what Jesus tells his disciples to do. Although interesting, it's now not based on ethnicity, is it? It's now not Jew versus Gentile. It's not Israel versus not Israel. It's now based on what do you do with Jesus. Jesus is now the identifying marker of God's people, not ethnicity. It's not about if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. What matters is, do you have Christ? And if you don't, then that's what makes you outside of God's kingdom. So even these towns in Israel are having the dust shaken off. Isn't that interesting? Something that's typically applied to Gentiles now applied to some of these Israelites. From these Jews, And it's because of what they do with Christ. And that's the deciding issue. And you know, not everyone's going to accept the Gospel. Not everyone's going to appreciate it. If Jesus was resisted, we are going to be resistant. If we're going to follow in his footsteps, then we need to expect everything that he experienced. And there's going to be some who won't like the Gospel, even if you present it in a loving, gentle, humble, non-threatening way. It's not the way so much. It's the message. There's power in the name of Christ. You know, Jesus is restructuring the universe. He's the king, and he's come in to set up his kingdom. It's not the democracy of God, it's the kingdom of God. And he's come, it's a restructuring. And you know, you've been in corporations, people don't like restructuring. (laughs) It freaks them out. And so here's Jesus doing a cosmic restructuring. Uh, New order, new plan, I'm the king, how's that? And not everyone's cool with that. There's going to be resistance and hostility, and sometimes open hostility toward the messengers, In fact, I think that's the point, if you flip over to verses 7 to 9, about the thing about Herod wondering who is this guy. You look at verse 9, but Herod said, I beheaded John, who then is this I hear such things about? That's rather ominous, isn't it? I beheaded the last guy who talked like this, now who's the new guy? And I think that that's there as kind of a reminder of The path of Christ. He's headed toward the cross. And that theme is going to be now put forward. In fact, look at verse 22. Just jumping ahead a little bit. Verse 22. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's his path. And then verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily to follow me. This is all part of it. Following Christ. It's going to take faith and it's going to meet rejection. And so we need a sense of having the speaker badge. It's okay. They're not rejecting me. They're rejecting Jesus. Christ that people have a problem with and I'm simply the messenger and unless I understand that I'm going to be turned off by rejection because I don't like rejection maybe some of you do, I don't I, I hate being rejected, I like when people like me I like to be on the inside of things I don't like criticism I'm an easy going person and so the idea of speaking up for Jesus knowing that I very well am going to be rejected is not natural it doesn't fit with my natural personality but I do it because I am the authorized spokesman and so are you Uh, My daughter had an interesting experience at school this week. She told me about, she's a third grader. And they had a writing assignment where they had to write something about Easter or spring that they were thinking. And what they're learning in their writing class was how to do quotes. So they would say, say something that you would say about Easter or spring and put it in quotes. So that was kind of the assignment. And so my daughter said, oh, this is what she wrote. And they're going to put it up on the walls outside of their classroom and stuff like that. It's going to be a big deal. So my daughter wrote on on Easter... I wake up early and I wake my brother up, and I say, "Wake up! It's Easter. We're going to church. This is the day Jesus rose from the dead." And that was her thing. Uh, she said, "You write about Easter." So that's what she wrote. And you know, she's a really neat kid. She doesn't, you know, we don't push these things on her. We don't tell her to go to school and write this stuff. She's just, just a really special kid. It comes out of her heart. So she goes and shows it to her teacher. Her teacher said, ah. "She said, you know, I." I believe that too, but I don't think we should put that up because I think we could get in trouble. And she showed it to the assistant who was there and the assistant said, yeah, let's not put that up. We could get in trouble. And, uh, you know, when I heard that, I mean, my first reaction as a level-headed man was to just (laughs) go down there and just go off. That was my first reaction. Go bananas to defend my daughter and be like, what? What? You said she could write about Easter. And in fact, they made her. They said, why don't you write something about the Easter Bunny instead? She had to write about the Easter Bunny. And I just want I was going bananas. And so I was like, and, and I, you know, I'm thinking like, well, what's Easter about? What kind of education are these giving these kids? If this education is so censored and so sterilized that kids can't even learn that the reason that billions of people every year celebrate Easter is because of the resurrection, this is a warped education. We're lying and deceiving these children. And not only that. But what about the First Amendment? Does it not apply when you're in third grade? Can't my daughter say what she thinks and write what she thinks without being censored? And what about freedom of religion? I guess it doesn't apply unless you're 18 or something. I don't know. And, and you know, I remember that during Hanukkah they had menorahs up in her class. And I also remember they talked about Kwanzaa, which is kind of a a fake, sort of not real holiday, but sort of is, but sort of isn't. And not only that, you know, I'm, I'm just going off in my mind. In second grade, they made... Dream catchers. You ever seen these things, you know, the hang down? That's a Native American ritual fetish that's used in divination as part of the Native American religion. They made those in class. They didn't make a cross. They didn't make an empty tomb diorama. But they could make another religion thing. So I'm just going bananas. Then I'm like, okay, cleansing breath. What's important here? I'm like, what's the most important thing? The most important thing is for my daughter to interpret this correctly. And so I sit down with her and I say, you know, I'm so proud of you that you you did this. I'm so proud that you wrote this. And you know, you need to understand that not everybody is going to receive Jesus and that our schools today and our country today is not the way it was originally founded. And there's, you know, you can be a lot of things in this country, but if you start talking about Jesus, people are going to be against you. And we read about it in our Bible story times we read about persecution and you need to understand you know that this is part of following Christ and so um, she's like, yeah you know I understand that and I said I just hope that in the future you're not afraid to do this again if this is what you feel and I 'm not pushing anything just if this is what you want to write and how you want to express yourself, keep doing it but understand that some will receive and some will reject it because that's the kingdom of God and it also told me uh, that, hey, in, in many ways this confirms the reality of Christ. The fact that you can talk about any of those other religions, it's like, okay, that's just that viewpoint, that viewpoint. But you start talking about Jesus and his resurrection, and there's something visceral that happens within people. Ooh, and it tells me that Jesus is the king, that he is the Lord, and that's why when you speak his name, people freak out. And so I should just accept that, because like I said, not everyone's excited about the new management of the universe, and so we need to understand that. I need to understand that if I am the hands of Christ and you are the hands of Christ, and we are reaching out to touch the world, to remember that the hands of Christ have nail prints in them. And that if I'm going to follow Jesus and proclaim him, I'm going to experience both the victories and the persecution that he experienced as well. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, give us boldness. Give us a sense of your presence in our lives. Lord, we know ourselves. We know how incapable we are of doing anything good without your Spirit. And um, Lord, we pray that you would give us a total dependence upon you. That we might go out as your people with that sense of that ribbon hanging from our hearts saying that we are your authorized spokespeople to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus in the various places that we go. Lord, I pray that we'd be ready for the risks that it will involve. We pray, Lord, that we'd be ready for the rejection. And that when we are rejected, Lord, we would, we would rejoice. You told us to rejoice when people persecute us and reject us. Because that is the same way they treated the prophets before us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would even rejoice in persecution, as painful as that is. And just respond in love and graciousness and kindness to those who reject us and continue to hold forth the love of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that the south shore of Boston might experience revival, that it might be awakened, that people might come to know your beauty, Jesus, and would love you and trust you as their Savior, that people would repent of their sins and turn to Christ. And, Lord, we know that your plan is to use us, that you're not going to bring in some SWAT team, but you're, we're the SWAT team. And so, Lord, use us. Give us boldness. Help us to be your instruments in this part of the country. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. We come now to the communion table. We come to celebrate Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for us, and his death on the cross for us. And Bob God.